John chapter 8. Let's remind ourselves of the setting of John chapter 8. John chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem and went to the pool of Bethesda and healed the impotent man. The Jews wanted to kill him for healing on the Sabbath. He said that he was doing what his father wanted him to do. They wanted to kill him for claiming that God was his father. And he gave some wonderful declarations about himself there on trial for his life. That was John 5. John chapter 6, he was back in Galilee. He fed the 5,000. They wanted to make him king. He exposed them as being belly worshipers that wanted free food rather than life with him of discipleship. Jesus came back to Jerusalem, not with his brothers who wanted him to come for a big public display, as the first few verses of John 7 told us, but he came back, as it were, secretly. And he's been there at the Feast of Tabernacles for two chapters. And we're at the end of chapter 8. This is our setting. He is exchanging with the Jews. He exchanged with them in chapter 7. He's exchanging with them here in chapter 8. We're going to conclude this chapter today. The name Abraham occurs nine times here in this eighth chapter. It doesn't occur in the other 20 chapters of the Gospel of John. Not a single time. But it's nine times here. They worshipped Abraham. They thought that because Abraham was their father through biological, physical, family descent, that heaven was guaranteed to them. And so John the Baptist had to correct it, Matthew chapter 3. Jesus had to correct it, John chapter 8. Paul had to correct it, Romans chapters 3 and 4, Galatians chapters 3 and 4, because of their error. We learn in this chapter, and we've learned it already, we're going to hear it again today, that character and conduct are the real measures of salvation. It's not Abraham, and it's not believing. It's changed lives that matter. Satan is behind false religion. We learned that last Lord's Day. Verse 44, look at that long verse. Jesus told the Jews, the most knowledgeable group of people on earth, the closest thing to a church that there was on earth, it was the church. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. This is the Lord Jesus Christ identifying for us that even the Jewish religion was satanic in its people because of their character and conduct. They hadn't repented. They weren't born again. They weren't elect. And so it's the devil behind the Jews' religion. If you hold your place there at John chapter 8 and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we can find out that those that aren't Jews also practice devil worship in their worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 20, Paul said, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, and I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. So that covers the human race. We've got the Jews operating by murderous and lying Satan, 
and we've got the Gentiles in all their forms of religion worshiping the devil by their sacrifices. Murder and lying are the chosen lusts of the devil, and we should hate any aspect of either. We should love truth. The fruit of the Spirit that is truth, that is not God's truth, that's our truth and our honesty toward others, is what we'll be praying for this Thursday evening. Truth. We want to love truth. We want to provide things honest in the sight of all men. And we want to love relationships and build them the way that we should, lest we be a murderer indirectly in the way that Jesus Christ defined murder. We want to be the opposite of the devil. Murder and lying are his chosen lust. And look at how he was able to affect the Jews. They could not see the plainest truth that was written in the word of God, announced to them by John the Baptist and confirmed by miracles and God's voice from heaven and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and the darkening of the sun at the crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Lies. If God deceives a man and sends him strong delusion to believe a lie, you're not going to believe the truth. He needs to send us the truth, and when we see it, we need to embrace it and practice it ourselves. And then the murder of these Jews, wanting to kill the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to take up stones in the last verse of our chapter. They're going to take up stones again in John chapter 10. They're going to want to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord's last argument from verses 43 to 47 that we covered last Lord's Day was of natural man's inability to hear. Natural man's inability to understand. And we wouldn't hear, we wouldn't understand, we wouldn't hear with understanding if it weren't for the grace of God. Because it tells us, he that is of God, in that 47th verse, heareth God's words, ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. If I told you a lie, you'd believe me, because you're following the devil, who's a liar from the beginning. He abode not in the truth, he had the truth in heaven, he had the truth on earth. He overthrew the truth with Adam and Eve. And so men have deserved a lie ever since. And God will give it to them if they reject the truth that he does offer. He offers truth in creation. He offers truth in providence. He offers truth in conscience. He offers truth in scripture. Let's make sure that we listen to all four. He's created. He providentially controls everything, including the weather. He has given many things to our consciences to keep us out of the way of error and sin, and he's given us the word of God. Help us to follow them. We've had the most beautiful three days in the history of the world, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and we're about to get number four. Do you understand that? Do you recognize it? Do you tell them? Do you tell them? Do you tell anyone else? Beautiful days. Unprecedented. Never seen blue like that. I've never seen a blue sky like yesterday. I know that you can remind me that you've heard those words before, but that's not going to alter what I'm saying right now about yesterday right. Right. or the day before or the day before. That's right. Because God is speaking to us, yeah. and while the rest of the world can ignore him, and while they want to talk about a little rainstorm down there in the Caribbean, I'm going to thank God for the beautiful weather he's given us. Amen. Now listen, I'm going to, I hope that I don't get off on this very long, but he started it, and so blame him, don't blame me. Anybody that lives in Florida deserves it. It's as simple as that. Anyone that wants to live next to the Gulf of Mexico deserves it. I sent you one fantastic link that I did not think USA Today was capable of printing in the Tuesday update 
about the times we've repaired the houses in Texas and Florida. Dear Texans and dear Floridians, why don't you move someplace where it doesn't send a hurricane every few years? Anyway, thank you, Lord, for the beautiful weather. I couldn't care less what comes on the Weather Channel. They are hyping that, pumping it, hyping it, pumping it, hyping it, pumping it, because they don't want you to think about anything that important that's going on. That is not important. Who cares if your little house is washed away? We're going to repay it anyway, and while we're repaying it because of forced confiscation of our assets through taxation to support those people down there by federal insurance programs, they're going to be doing this all day long. Give, give, give. We like living on sandy beaches where we shouldn't be living. Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful weather. Thank you, Lord, for not letting us be distracted. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the son of righteousness in the pages of John chapter 8. What will we do with God's truth that he's shown us? All of his truth. His truth that not only affects our doctrinal understanding, but our practical living. Are we going to embrace it and keep it all? We are dealing with the great I am that I am in flesh. Do not let others discourage you. Jesus wasn't discouraged. Others are not going to listen to the word of truth. Because there is no truth in them. Most of the world is darkened and blinded, so we shouldn't be surprised nor should we be discouraged at the response of others when we try to share the truth with them. It's only going to be a rare find that out in the middle of the desert do we find an Ethiopian eunuch. It's only going to be a rare find that we find a Cornelius that wants the truth. And who would say, we are all here this day to hear whatsoever God hath commanded thee. That is incredibly rare. So don't be surprised and don't be discouraged. What are our goals today? We want to learn all that we can about the Lord Jesus Christ by his words and actions to believe on him even more than we've ever believed on him because that's why John wrote it. John chapter 20 and verse 31. This is why we have the back and forth, back and forth between Jesus and the Jews so that we can learn his words and learn his actions and believe on him. Every time he comes back, he gives us a little bit more about himself. A little bit more about himself. And we want to embrace all of that. We want to scrape it all off the table toward us. We want all the chips that Jesus is going to give us in John chapter 8. We want to fully learn the doctrine of Jesus Christ to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's references made to never dying in here. There's immortality in here in these last verses. We want to learn them. We want to examine ourselves against any traces of Jewish hypocrisy in our lives. You've already heard it out of this pulpit. We cannot go out of here. You've heard it in prayer. You've heard it in the psalm explanation. We cannot go out of here. Thankful that we're the seed of Abraham and we know it. And no one else does, or very few do. We need to go out of here bearing the character of Abraham and the faithfulness of him and being a friend of God like him. We want to examine ourselves because we're going to be forced to by the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to protect ourselves from judgment now and later when he said, you'll die in your sins. They did die in their sins. They died inside the city walls of Jerusalem just 40 years later, and then they got to meet the Lord of glory, and they're going to get to meet him again formally and officially and finally and be judged for their sins. We don't die in our sins. Our body dies because of sin, and we are freed immediately from that and are in heaven, never to see sin again. 
we're delivered from the very presence of sin. We love being delivered from the power of it and the penalty of it and the practice of it, but we're delivered from the presence of it. Thank you, Lord. Verse 48, John chapter 8 and verse 48. Jesus has just told them in a number of verses, 42 through 47, that they were of their father, the devil, and that their religion was false and that they couldn't hear or understand him spiritually because they weren't born again. Let me read to you verses 48 through 55, and let's see if we can cover those. Verse 48, Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Amen. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Amen, amen and amen. Verse 48, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Why no repentance? If you ever hear the word of God preached like it was by Jesus in verses 42 through 47, there's only one thing to do. Repent. And if you're not up to repenting, then ask some questions of clarification instead of responding with scorn. The Lord hates scorners. It's the worst category of person in the book of Proverbs. It's not the fool. It's not the sluggard. It's the scorner. The scorner makes fun of the person and ridicules them and despises the one correcting and trying to teach them. No repentance here. If a perfect man with divine credentials taught you, repent. But they didn't. Rather than ask for clarification, they retort as profane scorners. Remember the lesson. When men have no argument, they resort to reviling. They'll call us names. They'll accuse us of all kinds of things because they don't have an argument. The Jews didn't have an argument against the Lord Jesus. Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan? They claimed to have sufficient evidence by listening to Jesus that he was a Samaritan. They fully knew that he was Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew as much as they were, but they called him a Samaritan because it was a slur expression in that time for a heretic or an imposter because the Samaritans were heretics and imposters. The Samaritans were aping the Jews' religion on Mount Gerizim, 30 miles away from Mount Zion and Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And so they called him a Samaritan, though knowing that he wasn't, because it was a slur expression that they used, uh, equivalent to a heretic, because the Samaritans were heretics. We learned all about the Samaritans in John 4, and it's not worth retracing that ground now. They also said he had a devil, in verse 48. 
Not only did these Jews presume to call Jesus a Samaritan, but devil possession as well. They're going to confirm that they meant it in just a few verses. Verse 52, Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Because of what you just said just adds further confirmation to the fact that you must be devil-possessed. Seeing his miracles earlier in his ministry, the Jews had said that he did it. He performed those miracles by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. If they said such things to Jesus, we can expect it as well from men. Do you understand that? We should expect it as well from men, because if they did it to our Lord and Master, they're certainly going to do it to his servants. And Jesus taught us that in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 25. I'll read it to you. Matthew 10, 25. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. Let's make sure we're like our master, the Lord Jesus, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Jesus is the master of this household. He's the head of the church. And if they call the Lord Jesus Christ Beelzebub, they're certainly going to call us evil names. And so they're at it. Hypocrites, liars, murderers, they'd kill us if they could. They don't fear God. They don't love the truth. They can't recognize any spiritual truth when it's laid right in front of them on a platter. Let's make sure that we're not so blind. We'll be blinded according to the degree of our disobedience. If you disobey, if you disobey in doctrine, if you disobey in your relationships at home, God's going to blind you. He's going to take away the love of the Spirit from you if you ever had it to begin with. We must obey the word given to us. And that is the emphasis of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he did to those in John 6. That's what he did to those in every chapter that we've been to. And he's going to press us here in verse 51. Look at He says, if a man keep my saying. It doesn't say if a man profess the 1689 confession of faith. It doesn't say if a man invites me into their heart. None of that means anything to him. It's if a man keep my saying. When we stand before him and cry out, Lord, Lord, it's not going to matter what we said. It's going to matter if we did what his Father commanded us. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. That's the issue. Lord, help us to follow that example and word. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me. Jesus did not answer about being a Samaritan because they knew that he wasn't a Samaritan. Jesus did answer them about being possessed of a devil since he himself had just brought Satan up. Jesus did answer them about being possessed of the devil since spiritual character was at stake. The slur term of Samaritan didn't mean anything, but that he was operating with the power of the devil did mean something. Jesus showed graciousness, prudence, and reservation in this gentle response of this clause. Mm -hmm. I have not a devil. He will get different, let's say, in the statements to come. The issue is, you Jews, I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. He reminded them that he honored God his father, which he had done before repeatedly. We have encountered Jesus referring to the fact that he had a divine mission from God and what he was preaching and teaching and doing was what God had told him to say and what God had told him to do. 
and that God was working with him in the doing of it. He mentioned his father in these words, but I honor my father. You're saying that I'm a Samaritan. You're saying I have a devil. But what I'm actually doing is honoring my father because I am on a divine mission from heaven at his sending. In John chapter 7 and verse 16, he had put it in these words. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. I honor my father. He mentioned his father as truth to validate his doctrine. Because look at verse 50. I seek not mine own glory. I'm honoring my father. Because the Jews understood and Jesus understood. And it's been stated in John 7 and 8. That when a person honors themselves, they're not to be trusted. But when a person honors the one that sent them, they should be trusted. And so Jesus constantly refers to that axiom that they both had, Jews and Jesus, that he was not honoring himself, but honoring the Father that had sent him. Let us in every way possible always honor our Father in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't honor himself. When Jesus healed a man, what would he tell him? Don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone about this. He would slip away, like at the pool of Bethesda. Don't tell anyone about this, because he wasn't a self-promoter. He didn't lift his voice up in the streets. But let us be like the Lord Jesus Christ, always honoring our Father in heaven. If we will always honor our Father in heaven, there is nothing that heaven can hold against us, and there's nothing that honest men on earth can hold against us. I'll give you one chapter. Matthew chapter 5, about always honoring our Father in heaven. It says in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let our lives be filled with good works that cause men to glorify our Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16, the words of the Lord Jesus. The last verse of the chapter. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We can honor our Father in this verse by loving our enemies. Because Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, ending this fifth chapter of Matthew, is about loving your enemies. And when we do that, we're perfect. Even as our Father which is in heaven is perfect, because he sends beautiful days like today on the evil and the good. Back to John chapter 8. My point there was just a practical application of Jesus saying, I honor my Father. Let's always do that. We call ourselves Christians. We're Christ-like. We're little Christ. We're followers of Christ. We're Jesus Christ's disciples. Let's always honor our Father in heaven. And ye do dishonor me. Though Jesus brought God's doctrine and warning, the Jews despised Jesus. We're in the 49th verse. I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me. I'm just doing what God sent me to do. I'm just preaching what God sent me to preach, and you dishonor me? You call me a devil? You say I have a devil? You say I'm a Samaritan? You mock me for being a Nazarene? Jesus condemned the Jews for their disrespect of his divine mission from God. Think about God calling his beloved... Think about calling, as the Jews were doing here, 
God's beloved son to be possessed of a devil. Remember what we learned in John chapter 5? The father loveth the son. The father loveth the son. And if you don't honor the son, you are not honoring the father. Because the father hath committed all honor and judgment to the son. Remember that from John 5? I've got to recall it. I've got to ask for your memories. When you neglect or slight God's son, you neglect and slight God, which is what these Jews were doing. That's what verse 49 is teaching us in the exchange between the Jews and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us always honor the Lord Jesus Christ, and by so doing, we honor the Father. Verse 50, And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. I seek not mine own glory. This had been and still was an important argument of Jesus. I'm not honoring myself. I'm not seeking my glory. I'm seeking the glory of someone else. And because human pride is so powerful, it create, that turns it into an axiom of integrity. When a person is always wanting to honor the one that sent them, it becomes a general rule of integrity. That man is telling the truth. And so Jesus refers to that again. Let it be said of us, like Jesus said of himself in John 50, that we want to honor God and we want the glory of God in everything that we do. God gets the glory. All glory to God. That little expression that we get out of St. Louis on a regular basis, all glory to God, is something that we ought to live by. Let's be like John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving us a perfect example. He's giving us the reason why we ought to believe on him as the perfect son of God. This is the way he reasoned. I glorify God. I don't want any myself. I honor God. I'm not seeking any honor myself. We're learning about our Savior by these verses. Let us minimize ourselves personally and our church to exalt God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus said in the last half of this verse 50, there is one that seeketh and judgeth. Oh, yes. There is someone else that you can't see right now, Jews, that is very earnest about seeking out me, my honor, my glory, my friends, and my enemies. And he's the one that does the judging. He's referring to the Father in heaven. In the second half of verse 50, God, my Father, the Lord Jehovah that was revealed to you Jews, will deal with you all. I am his son. He is my father. He will punish you for dishonoring me. He taught us that in chapter 5. I am on a divine mission from God. My words are his words. My primary intent is not to judge you, but my words will judge you. Look at chapter 12. John chapter 12 and verse 47. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. That was the purpose of Jesus Christ's first coming. The purpose of Jesus Christ's second coming is directly opposite that. Verse 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words, hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The doctrine of Jesus Christ, the preaching of Jesus Christ, are you obeying it or not? It will turn to judge you. Back to John chapter 8 and verse 50. God seeks the honor of his son. 
God seeks the enemies of his son that are to be destroyed. There is one that seeketh my honor and seeketh my protection, and he does the judging. I don't have to honor myself. I don't have to glorify myself because there's a God in heaven. I glorify him. I honor him, and he'll take care of me. And because of the way that you're treating me, guess what's going to happen to you? That's what John chapter 8 and verse 50 means. Verse 51, Verily, verily, I say unto you, If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Verily, verily. How many times does it occur in Matthew? None. Mark. None. Luke. None. How many times in John? 25 times to identify important statements the Lord Jesus Christ is about to make. And so we get it here in verse 51. What follows, verily, verily, must be pretty important. If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. This is an if-then construction. We do not believe that we can earn our way to heaven by keeping the saying of Jesus Christ. But we do believe that we can lay hold of eternal life, which is the promised reward, on the condition of the evidence of keeping the sayings of Jesus Christ. I don't want to waste any time undoing what we know it doesn't mean. I want to look at what it does say to us. Because this is the religion of Jesus Christ. If a man keep my saying, and the saying is a collective noun for all the sayings. It's to believe on Jesus Christ. It's to obey Jesus Christ. It's everything Jesus taught. It is a collective noun. It's very simple. It's throughout the scriptures. And we don't need to worry about that either. Because it's not one commandment of Jesus that we're to keep. It's all of the commandments of Jesus that we're to keep. But notice the words. If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. If a man keep my saying. It doesn't, it's not just baptism. It's not church membership. It's not reading your Bible every day. It's not believing on Jesus, inviting Jesus into your heart, accepting Jesus as your personal Savior. It's not those things. It's keeping, which is obeying my doctrine. If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Jesus had warned the so-called believers that they needed to continue. Remember that in verse 31? I don't want you to ever forget it. Verse 31 of this chapter, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That is keeping and obeying the saying of Jesus Christ. His doctrine, the body of truth that Jesus Christ presented to the world, continuing in it. That's what makes a person a disciple. It's not believing. The devils believe and tremble. The Bible warns us about all these things. Jesus had warned them about his truth to be freed from slavery to sin. In verse 32 of this chapter, Jesus told those believing Jews, Ye shall know the truth, because you don't know it yet, and the truth shall make you free. They didn't understand his spiritual application of those, that word free, so he explained it to them in verse 34. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. This is a changed life person. A changed life. If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. The importance of works for the proof of eternal life can hardly be overstated. 
It is throughout the scriptures, but it is totally denied by modern Arminianism, which the vast majority of us have grown up in, and Calvinism. They ignore it. Justification by faith? Try to prove that from a Bible. Sola fide. Sola fide. Faith only. Really? That's not what the Bible preaches. That's not what Jesus taught. It's not faith only. It's faith plus works. It's faith plus knowledge, virtue, patience, godliness, temperance, brotherly kindness, and charity. It's faith that worketh by love. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. It's throughout the scriptures. Today's Arminians argue over whether Jesus is actually Lord and should be addressed as Lord in their little trite prayers of inviting him into your heart. It's called the Lordship Controversy. I've told you about it many times. It shows how far Arminianism has gone to seed. That you shouldn't even call Jesus Lord in inviting him into your heart. You should only identify him as Savior. But notice what the Savior said. And what the Lord Jesus Christ said, If a man keep my saying, Jesus will confront you about your works when you meet him, not about your decision for him. I've already quoted Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 25, the sheep on his right hand are identified as being the ones there on his right hand that did something, that did something, that did something for the least of his followers. Not pray for them. Not make a decision. Not believe anything. Serve them. Serve them in practical, costly time. Things that cost time and money. Serve them. That's what Jesus said. That's the Jesus I preach. If a man keep my saying, we believe Mark 16, 16, different from Baptists and Campbellites. Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. We believe it. Baptists don't believe it because they take off the second half of it. He that believeth shall be saved. Oh, they don't want that baptism stuck in there. So you never get that part. He that believeth shall be saved. But we believe the whole thing. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Because if your belief hasn't resulted in baptism, then what kind of belief do you have? And we don't believe what the Campbellites do with it. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved because all that matters in that sentence is being baptized. They don't care about good works. All they care about is being baptized because of their acts and 2.38s that they have in Acts 2.38. He shall never see death. By the way, brethren, let's back up just a second. If, if, this is a conditional statement. If a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Does that mean we can earn our way to heaven by keeping the saying of Jesus Christ? No, it does not. This is a condition for evidence. This is a condition for a claim on eternal life. This is well documented in a, in a document on our website called Salvation Problem Text. If you were to type in the words problem text into our website's search magnifying glass, you will get a long document showing seven categories of problem text when it comes to understanding the doctrine of salvation. By God's grace, one of them is the conditional statement for evidence, like right here. How many natural men that aren't born again, how many reprobates that aren't elect, are ever going to keep the saying of Jesus Christ? None. 
So it's only a man that is elect and it's only a man that is born again that would ever keep the saying of Jesus Christ. Jesus already said that in verse 47. And so what is it? This if-then construction. If he shall never see death, it's for evidence. It's how we lay hold of eternal life. Do you know the Bible tells Timothy? Paul was telling Timothy long after his ordination when he was a pastor of a church for Timothy to lay hold of eternal life. We want to get our hands on eternal life. We want to make our eternal life, our calling and our election, sure. sure. In the same chapter, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6, Timothy, lay hold on eternal life. Timothy, tell the rich that they should be ready to distribute, willing to communicate, that they might lay hold on eternal life. It's all lay hold on eternal life. Amen. Do you want to lay hold on eternal life? The Jews wanted to lay hold on eternal life. Cut the throat of another animal. Cut the throat of another animal. Cut the skin off the end of a little boy's weapon. Cut, cut, cut. Cut another animal's throat. Cut another little boy. Circumcision, animal sacrifices. But if, it's a, if, it's a, man, if a man keep my saying... Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He shall never see death. Did Jesus know that this was going to cause confusion? For him to say he shall never see death? Amen, absolutely yes. Jesus always knew. Since every child of God but Enoch and Elijah did die, what did Jesus mean? He shall never see death. He meant eternal death, the second death, as the much more important death. This should be so obvious the first rule of Bible study, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Remember? That was two weeks ago. No contradictions in the Bible. And we have all the great men of faith that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 dying, except for one. Enoch. They died. So it must not be talking about physical death. It's got to be talking about a different death. Rule number two, which you got this last Wednesday, though I went through the slides quickly. Rule number two from this past Wednesday was the smaller context. The first context is the whole Bible. We know that great men that, went, that are in heaven, what's heaven called, by the way? Abraham. Abraham's bosom. Do you think he's there? Yeah. Abraham is there. And that's the context of the whole Bible. There are men like Abraham that, that are dead. And yet Jesus said they'll not see death, so we know it's not physical. So when we come into the context of the Gospel of John, is there something that Jesus talks about in every chapter? It's eternal life. Right. Contrary to eternal death. Every chapter. Do you, do you know John 3.16? Do you know John 4.14? To the woman of Samaria. If you drink the water that I'll give you, it'll spring up in, into you into a fountain of everlasting life. It's everlasting life. This is the second death that's under consideration here. He meant that obedient believers would have eternal life. He used terminology that he fully knew these natural idiots would misapply. That's nice. I'm still being nice to them. Verse 52. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying... He shall never taste of death. You've just proved yourself wrong by the facts of our nation. Abraham and the prophets are dead. They died. 
They saw death. So how can you say, if a man keep my saying? Did Jesus know that they would misapply 851? And, and look at it as evidence that he had a devil? Definitely. Do not be surprised, but rather rejoice when those that you share the truth with respond similarly to you. Off they go with Abraham again. They just can't leave him alone, can they? They refer to the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and others, all of whom had died. They can only think naturally. Though eternal life is greater, and it's Jesus' theme that he had preached incessantly. And thou sayest of a man, keep my saying. There are powerful reasons we rightly divide Scripture, brethren. The powerful reasons are, one, he told us to. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Then places like this, where he shall never see death. Well, there's got to be a division made. He'll never see spiritual death. He'll never see physical death. He'll never see fellowship death. He'll never see eternal death. He'll never see second death. We rightly divide the word of truth. It's our job, it's our privilege, it's our pleasure, and it's a fantastic blessing from the God of heaven for us to understand the Bible better. Verse 53, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? Abraham's dead. Art thou greater than our father Abraham? Do you know what, if I'd have been there, do you know what I'd have shouted? Amen! Amen, yes, he's greater than our father Abraham. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? They are saying, if your doctrine can overcome death, then you are greater than Abraham. They are saying, since Abraham is dead and you offer men immortality, you must be greater, in your opinion. They are saying, but we know that you're not greater than him because you're a Nazarene Samaritan possessed by a devil, and the evidence proves it. Because what you're saying is impossible. Who makest thou thyself? This is a scornful question to mock the Nazarene and Samaritan with the devil. This is a foolish and unlearned question and worse. This is a scornful question. They asked Jesus what he thought of himself contrary to all rules of integrity. Notice, if he said anything, they claimed that he was honoring himself and therefore his testimony was not true. Then they tell him to honor himself by making a testimony of himself. It, listen, when men don't have an argument and when men are motivated by the devil, they're going to talk out of both sides of their mouths. They don't know what they're talking about. Right. He had given them three confirming witnesses of his identity in John chapter 5. That's right. These are the Jews of the same city that wanted to kill him for healing on the Sabbath day and for claiming God was his father. Remember the three confirming witnesses? John the Baptist, my miracles, and the scriptures. He had in this exchange declared that God was his other witness in verses 13 through 18 of this chapter. He said, your law requires two witnesses. I have two, myself and my Father in heaven. Who makest thou thyself? You little backwoods Nazarene. Who do you think you are? You Samaritan. You're possessed of a devil. You're a nutcase. Who do you think you are pretending that you're greater than Abraham by offering immortality that even Abraham and the prophets don't have? Who do you think you are? 
I love the Lord Jesus Christ that I get to represent. He will have the last laugh on every single person, every single nation, every single church, every single pulpit, every single pastor, every single pope, every single priest, every single college of cardinals that has ever mocked him. That's right. Do you know what happened to these men 40 years later? Do you know what went down in that city of Jerusalem? Listen, see, folks, I just don't understand. This is number two. I don't understand. What, what, what was it, Harvey? Thomas? What, what, what happened in Texas? That little, that little rainstorm they had down there, what was it called? Harvey? Was it, was it Harvey? Harvey. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, guess, I guess that word must have passed by my eyes sometime. I didn't know it. What is this other thing called? Irma? Hmm. Irma. Uh, how many people did uh, Harvey kill? Oh, none. None? Ten? Twenty? What big number do you want to lay on me? Are we really going to blame Harvey because idiots get in their cars and try to drive through water that's four feet over the top of the car? Are we going to blame Harvey? You see, I don't care about that, just like Jesus didn't care when they came to him and said, what about that tower that fell and killed 13 people? He said, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. That's what matters. But nobody talks that way. Nobody talks about repentance. Jesus did not feel sorry, and Jesus did not reach in his pocket to make a donation to people that a tower fell on, nor did he reach in his pocket to make a donation for those that Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Are you familiar with Luke chapter 13, the first five verses? Except ye repent. Do you know what happened in the city of Jerusalem for language like this? One point one million died. And they did not get to die by drowning. They got to die by starvation. They were under a siege of the Roman Empire and the women ate their children. And it is perfectly fitting and it was prophesied by God in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that that's what would happen to his people if they turned their backs on him and they turned their backs on his son. And I wonder how many of us, who of us today is turning his back, her back on the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says, if you keep my saying, it's the whole body of doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes everything doctrinal that we understand. It includes everything practical in the way of worship that we practice in this church. And it's everything in your home. It's every relationship. It's every word. It's every thought. It's everything you watch. It's everything you allow your children to watch. 1.1 million. Irma. Harvey. Oh. The Weather Channel is the least important channel that has ever been put on a television. That's right. It is worthless information. Tell me how it's helped you, unless it has a documentary on how, God, how great God is for his creation of weather. Amen. Like we heard this morning from Psalm 107 and our quiet brother Zach. Amen. Who makest thou thyself? Do you know what he said on trial? He said nothing until Caiaphas called him and forced him to swear and forced him to agree by swearing an oath 
whether he was the son of God or not. You bet I'm the son of God. And you're going to see the son of God descending from heaven in the clouds of glory. And they did. And they got to die in the rubble of Jerusalem. Verse 54, Jesus answered, They have just said to him, Whom makest thou thyself? If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. So he's applying their logic and his own logic to their request. I'm not going to honor myself because my honor would be nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me. Jesus did not need to promote himself since God had already honored him. God had given him the three witnesses that I've mentioned. Let me go over it again. John 5 was beautiful, and we loved going there. Jesus is on trial for his life in the city of Jerusalem for healing the impotent man. Three witnesses. John the Baptist, miracles, scripture. God had spoken from heaven and would do so again before we get out of this gospel and would darken the sun at his crucifixion. But would, did the Jews confess him? The centurion confessed him. Truly, this man was the Son of God and those that were standing with him. God would confirm Jesus at Pentecost and then destroy his enemies in 70 AD. It is my Father that honoreth me. I don't need to honor myself, and you can't honor me. God has honored me. Of whom ye say that he is your God. If he's your God, why don't you know his Son? If he is your God, why don't you know the Messiah that he sent on a divine mission from heaven? If they knew anything about the true God, they should have known him. Look at verse 42 of this same chapter. Jesus had said unto them just previously, If God were your father, John 8, 42, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Do you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was on this earth was sent here with a divine mission? God, creator of heaven and earth, the Lord Jehovah, sent Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth appealed to that fact numerous times in these exchanges, and these exchanges should further convince us and confirm us in believing on Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Messiah sent from heaven. This is how he testified of himself, and he backed it up with John's testimony, the numerous miracles that he performed, his resurrection from the dead, and the Bible declaring it so, and all the details that we have of the virgin mother that he had, of his ability at the age of 12 to confound the doctors of the law, that he was born in Bethlehem, Ephratah. We know those things. Do you believe on him today? It's not enough to believe. Will you obey him if a man keep my saying? We come to verse 55. Verse 54 ended with the words, of whom ye say that he is your God. He mocked them for claiming Jehovah is God, since Jehovah was his father. Verse 55, Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Ah, we have it again. So we're supposed to keep the saying of Jesus Christ, and God sent Jesus Christ with the saying that he preached, and Jesus Christ kept the saying of God the body of doctrine, the body of truth, the the commandments and the precepts that God had given Jesus. Jesus kept them all and obeyed his Father in everything he did, and we're supposed to obey everything that came through the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Yet ye have not known him, 
but I know him. Though they claim to know God and to be his, they are but children of Satan. As Jesus had identified them in verse 44. Yet Jesus knew God very well and had declared much in this gospel of it, of his relationship to his father. We have and will meet heretics and hypocrites boasting of their closeness to God. It is such a laugher. Closeness to God is evidenced by character. Isn't that what you did last Sunday, Mark? Did you use Psalm 15 last Sunday? Have we failed to mention that? Did Zach fail to mention that? I won't fail either of us right now. When we're talking about character and a changed life, Psalm 15, who gets to go to heaven? Who gets to be with the Most High? Who gets to dwell in the tabernacle of God? Those that keep the commandments of God. He that doeth these things shall sit in heaven. He that doeth these things shall never fall. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11 and Psalm 15 are identical by the one author, the Holy Spirit. It's, it's a changed life. It's character. You don't know God, but I know Him. We're going to meet heretics and hypocrites that boast of their closeness to God. Well, I'm so much closer to God after I've left such a legalistic church. Oh, listen to the effeminate drivel coming out of their mouths. They don't even know God. When they deny truth and they deny doctrine that they were taught and deny a commitment that they made and a covenant that they made, and then they want to tell us about their closeness. Define your close relationship with God. It is not a warm and fuzzy feeling. Your close relationship with God is how much you are like Him. Do you love your enemies like Him? Does your life glorify Him? Closeness to God is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's basking in the truth of his word and having your spirit lifted up to glorify him by obedience and praise. Well, I just have a peace about it. Of course you're going to have a peace about it. It's fun to go to a church where there's no accountability. It's fun to go to a church where judgment is never preached. It's fun to go to a church where there's just a praise and worship band. It's fun to go to a church where I can wear shorts, flip-flops, and be sucking on Starbucks. Of course it is. I'd have a peace too if I was there. I'd have a, a piece of cake to go along with my Starbucks. And if I should say, this is my Lord Jesus Christ, I love the way he talked and walked. If I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. You say I know him, that makes you a liar. If I said I didn't know him, that'd make me a liar. Because I know him and you don't. Now John, they, they, they still want to tell me that John's the apostle of love. I do not know why John wrote this. And John liked it so much that when you get over to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4, he wrote, He that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This apostle, I love this apostle. You just remember his name. He is John Zebedee, but don't forget his middle name. Boanerges. John Boanerges Zebedee. Son of thunder. He's the one that wanted to call fire down from heaven in a village of the Samaritans. But I know him and keep his saying. Notice the one author of scripture. I know him and keep his saying. 
to say that you know him and don't keep his saying, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. That's 1 John 2, 4. I'll not even quote it again to you. I want you to see it right here in the last phrase, clause of verse 55. But I know him. You don't know him. You don't keep his saying. But I know him and keep his saying. Do we know him? Do you know him? Do you keep his saying? The body of doctrine and truth that he's given. Has it changed your life? Is it changing your life right now? Are you changing from better to better to better? That is what Jesus Christ does to lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. From glory to glory, even by the Spirit of our God. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll take our break, we'll come back, and we'll see him exalt himself a little higher compared to Abraham. And uh, he'll talk about Abraham and, his, and Abraham's relationship with this gospel day that we have. We are so blessed to live on this side of the cross of Calvary and the time and day of salvation to see things like we do. All that matters is we see, we hear, we change. Lord, help us to do that. Yes. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.